When it comes to us as indigenous people, the biggest thing is that these foods were never part of our diet. Salt, sugar, and flour, you know, were introduced when my people were sent on the, the long walk called Huilte, and they were sent by the U.S. government to a concentration camp where these foods were introduced. And to this day, we are still fighting these foods. listening to In Praxis, a podcast on the Praxis Project created to support, hear from, and uplift the stories coming out of the ecosystem of base building organizing. An ecosystem that includes frontline base building groups and the folks who help support their important work. In this season of In Praxis, our hosts, Julian Johnson and Courtney Nahn, focus on sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. We have compiled interviews from advocates working on issues surrounding the reduction of sweet and sugary beverages, as well as the taxation of these products. Participants of this podcast are community members, public health practitioners, health department representatives, and concerned parents that span across the country. In each episode, you will hear about their phenomenal work, as well as their perspective on the health effects of sugary consumption, and in what ways policy can be used to combat this and lead to reinvestment in our communities. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Denise Livingston. We're going to be talking a little bit about sugar sweet beverages. Denisa, do you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about yourself to get us started? Yeah, so hello everyone. That's a greeting in my Dine language. I am Denisa Livingston and I am a community health advocate leading the organization, the Dine Community Advocacy Alliance here on the Navajo Nation. And we have been a grassroots organization focused on health justice and health policies and um, really bringing awareness about the lack of access to healthful foods. And I also serve as the Slow Food International Indigenous Council of the Global North. And so my work has really been focused on helping our communities worldwide in regards to the epidemics that we face that are food related, and as well as empowering our people to be change makers. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Regarding your work, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you first got involved in working on issues of health. Yeah, so my first experiences have been in my early childhood days. Um, I grew up in a family working on social justice issues and my grandmother really leading the charge with my uncle, who were greatly impacted by my grandpa passing away from direct contamination of uranium. And that was from the uranium mining that the U.S. government hired our own people to mine uranium on, on Navajo land. And since, you know, I've been growing up in this sort of uh, activities that 
never did I know that I was growing up in this situation or, you know, in in this culture of my grandma really leading this legacy and being nuclear free and trying to advocate for the health of the people and the injustices caused by uranium and growing up in that and all of the political activities, unaware of the impacts that it would make, you know, in, in a positive manner, but also creating change in and around where we live, but also on an international scale, the impact that we've had as a family to bring awareness about this issue in other countries. And later on in my life, um, I continue to um, navigate, you know, towards health and health equity and as well as um, health justice and food justice and um, received my master's of public health and at that time was also introduced to community members that were also concerned about um, nutrition and about the diabetes epidemic here on the Navajo Nation and decided to work with them and to work together to address these issues, but really based on the um, the lack of availability of health, fresh, affordable foods that were were pretty much non-existent here on the Navajo Nation. And we saw a lot of the food in the inventories that were in the stores and the convenience stores, these access points, that it was full of unhealthy food. And so since then, I really dived into addressing that but also raising awareness about food traditionalism and food sovereignty and reclaiming our um, healthful way of life through our traditional healthy foods. So that's basically, you know, what I've been through growing up in it and then realizing, you know, the, the greater call, but also the greater purpose that was also laid, you know, before me by my family and, and especially my grandmother who has been leading this work and still to this day is continuing to advocate and as well as my my uncle who has led this work um, in regards to helping the people. So it, it's been part of um, my life, but even more seriously, as I knew that this is something that I needed to also do. Wow, that's incredible. I really appreciate how you talk about, you know, like the legacy and tradition of this work in your family. So I'm curious, you spoke a little bit about, you know, working specifically about unhealthy foods. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that sugary drinks were part of the problem that your community was facing. Yes. So when I returned from um, college and was really um, living back on Navajo, um, I realized, you know, that my day to day life was impacted as I would travel long journeys, you know, to and from meetings that were far stretched, like some, you know, 50 miles, 100 miles, uh, 200 miles one way and traveling across my homelands and knowing that food was was not um, something that that I saw was an empowering experience. And so when we would stop, you know, at these access points, we would see nothing but unhealthy food. And that personally affected me and also the team and um, my relatives that I had been working with. And knowing that um, transitioning to a time of making your own lunch and, you know, preparing in advance for, you know, these these road trips that, you know, were day-to-day experience that we would have to take our own healthy food with us because we knew that we wouldn't find it at the local convenience store or, you know, at, um, we, we did not, did not have any 
healthy access points, for example, like whole food store or, you know, uh, establishments that were just focused entirely on healthful foods. And so this is something that, you know, became quite a concern for all of us as we struggled with that, knowing that, you know, these long trips every day to our meetings or to our activities that we were doing, that sometimes, you know, you you didn't have time to prepare the healthy food or to prepare in advance. And we would get stuck, you know, either eating at a local eatery that, you know, serve mostly fast foods or fried foods or, you know, foods that were contaminating our diet. And so we struggled with that and eventually moved into doing more potlucks at our meetings where people would bring food to ensure that we would eat, you know, healthful foods without having to go out and have, you know, fast food or unhealthy food. So it was quite some time um, to recognize that it was going to be a long journey to address this for future generations, but it had to start with us. It had to start, you know, with that conversation and knowing that we were up against this because at that time, the USDA had revealed that we were a 99% quote unquote food desert. And we knew that this, this was a part food apartheid and that, you know, we didn't want to call it a food desert and a desert is an ecosystem where it's full of life. So we knew, you know, that we needed to take on um, this task to be able to empower our people. That's great. And yeah, building off of that, if there's something in particular that made you decide to, you know, put some of your energy into sugary drink consumption in particular, what made you decide to invest your energy into this work in general? So at that time, we saw many of the drinks in bigger quantities being served that were widely available, widely distributed. Um, even at the grocery stores, were at the forefront. When you enter the grocery store, you were not entering the space of the fresh fruits and vegetables, but you would be faced with these unhealthy foods and sodas stacked up for consumers to easily buy and for easy access and easy reach. Um, and this was a big concern because we knew it was cheap, unhealthy food. We knew that it was cheap, unhealthy drinks that you know, made a culture um, code that we were scaling without knowing we had a right to say that this is enough. Like we cannot have these sugary drinks at the forefront. We need to bring the fresh fruits and vegetables to the front. Like it is our right, you know, to be able to advocate for healthy food and recognizing that it wasn't only the adults drinking this, but also all the way down to the children who were drinking um, these sugary drinks. And it was their breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Many times and in many conversations that we've had, families were reliant on the cheap foods that were available and these drinks, you know, that were widely available all across the Navajo Nation. And we needed to put a stop to that and really emphasize, you know, that it's causing harm to our bodies and also to our diets, but it was never a part of who we were before as Indigenous people. And so this is important for us as we were navigating the conversation about food as medicine. And so we knew the sugary drinks and all of the foods that are attached you know, to um, that type of um, habit was also something that people were not comfortable talking about. For example, we talked about it 
but we had to be in a very safe and inclusive conversation where folks knew that if they were going to be talking about this, they're also revealing that they may have an addiction to these foods. And so the depth and severity of what we were diving into, we knew that it was not just one generation, it was multi-generational and the impacts of it has been continuing throughout. And really there were, there were no regulations or even to this day, no regulations about these types of unhealthy drinks and also foods where we live. So it has been a great concern knowing that the consumption was very high when we look uh, across our own people and our own population. So with that recognition, I'm wondering if you can recall your first activity you remember doing to start really addressing the health effects of sugary drink consumption. So with the team that I was working with, we are working on a grassroots level and still are working at that level. We started to do surveys really getting insights about what people were thinking, if people were on the same page as us and distributing those surveys. Um, and we were you know, collecting the information at the grocery stores or at that time as much as we could for those that have access to you know, an email or um, the website to fill out the survey or even on social media. That was one activity that I remember that we were very nervous about because you have a group of people that are advocating for more healthful opportunities, but at the same time, we wanted to see if there's any solidarity in that or if, if people were very concerned like we were um, because we've seen the increase of diabetes and we've seen you know, our own people suffer. We had those personal experiences with our family members who may have gone to very difficult challenges with their health and even to the point of amputations of the foot or the the leg um, that we've seen, you know, through these epidemics. And so we did, you know, complete those surveys and did get support and people were in support of really bringing this awareness about and diving into what the communities thought about what was being served, but also what was accessible as far as these food access points. So that's the first activity that I remember. Yeah, so I guess building off of that, do you mind talking a little bit more about other strategies you've used to address sugary drink consumption? We are the first organization to pass an unhealthy foods tax called the Healthy Dinner Nation Act. And it was a 2% tax on unhealthy food and drinks. And we have used many strategies, but one of the really important things is that we are looking at our cultural identity that unhealthy foods were beginning to shape the identity of who we um, are and who we were and, and really taking a dominant narrative that we were unhealthy and that we're very vulnerable to the health epidemics. And we had to change that conversation. For example, we had to create the word with our community members what unhealthy food or quote unquote junk food is. Like we knew that there was junk and we knew that there was food. There was no such thing as junk food. And since this unhealthy food did not exist in our diets before, we knew that we had to create a word and that word is Ian Bajol. And Ian means food, but Bajol means the scraps, the unhealthy food, the processed food, the crap, the CRAP, carbonated refined artificial processed foods, the prison food and the food that contaminates our, our bodies and our immune systems and our identity, and we had to scale that um, 
those words that will be able to resonate with folks that knowing that, hey, there, we need to draw a line somewhere, but also we need to look at the empowering part of how do we change the conversation. And so the positive side of not only just looking at the negative impacts and the consequences of what we have done, but also look on the positive side, knowing that the Healthy Dinner Nation initiatives would be a hashtag, um, but also that healthy food is life. In Dinner, we say, and that means that this food is something that is holy, something that is sacred to us. So we had to look at the conversation in, in a balance that we're not only like focused and driving the conversation on sugary beverages and, and the culture of that, but also we're looking at, you know, how as Indigenous people do we come out of this with resiliency, but also um, knowing that we have a greater purpose um, when it comes to our foodways and our food systems and knowing that as advocates and as community members, as Diné people, as Indigenous people, that we would have to make a turn somewhere or try to transition or start the conversations as we knew that this would be a tool, but also a vehicle to drive in the direction of food sovereignty and food traditionalism. And so that was one big strategy. And even to this day, we are still encouraging our community members to know that we need to protect and also promote and reclaim these foodways, um, especially through the time of COVID-19. And so with the hashtag food is medicine, we are um, urging our community members to be able to not just go through this time, but grow through it. That food is medicine and food is something that um, is, is something that we are able to to use to be able to heal our bodies, to be able to heal some of the atrocities and the ailments, but also the um, historical trauma and be able to address history, be able to address the present, but also create history for the future. And so many strategies are very culturally related. And also um, the leadership of this is something that, you know, we were um, ensuring that, you know, it, it was intergenerational and also the conversations were being led by the people. Wow, that was very powerful. I think there's so much to learn from, you know, the perspective and insight that you and your community really bring. And specifically, like, you know, talking about sugar-sweetened beverages are like one thing, but like it's about, you know, transformation of systems, which is, I think, kind of what you were touching on a little bit, but that's that's really great. Um I guess to pivot a little, although I think you've been talking about this a lot in all of your responses, but there's a rising focus on quote unquote health equity in public health initiatives and activities. And I was wondering if you have some insight into how health equity can be authentically centered in soda tax policies and, you know, these strategies in general. Um, and, you know, are there ways of doing this that you consider to be more effective than others? Yeah, so. One of the really critical conversations about this, and we've been in many discussions about health equity and um, the lingo that we use and the words that we use, that many times that community members don't use these words. You know, for us that are in public health, we, we use these, our health professionals, we're talking about this, but how do we turn those terminology into words, uh, everyday words of our community members so that they're able to react, but also be a part and to be a participant of creating change. 
And I believe we focus so much on the outcome of like, you know, what, what strategies and what policies, and we need to step back and really um, connect with community because I believe communities have many solutions and answers and frameworks that we have never thought about, but also that when it comes to ancestral practices that we can incorporate and cultural practices and healing frameworks that can come from community members. And so when we're speaking about that, we also need to be thinking about the inclusion. In our experience of this being grassroots, many times we are left out of conversations because um, these conversations were happening in, you know, in a hospital, um, you know, boardrooms or in private sector rooms or, you know, in, in environments that did not include community or community members or even in academia, the community members were left out of these critical conversations. So when we're talking about change, when we're talking about health equity, it is important that we also include the voices of the youth the voices of the elders, the voices of those that would not ordinarily be, you know, in a college class or be on a webinar or be, you know, in these spaces where most of us um, do our work, that we have to come out of that and also see from the perspective, especially when they are suffering from these health-related illnesses and um, diseases and epidemics that they have personal engagements with the problems that we're speaking about. And so oftentimes we don't get what, you know, what solutions that they're trying to drive, but also trying to voice. There are many voices that are crying out loud and, and yelling for help, but we don't hear them. They're so loud, but yet we don't hear those voices and, and hear those strategies or solutions. And so I believe, you know, that is one really critical aspect, especially when we're talking about, like I mentioned, Ian Bajol and Ian Yahatsehegi, that comes from the people, that comes from the heart of the people, that the work that is in collaboration with communities is very important as it is the lifeline of our work and should be the lifeline of our work. Instead of eliminating and working in silos, that there has to be sectionality, also interconnectedness, so that we can be able to know that some of this um, some of the resources and also the knowledge and the wisdom may not come out of textbooks, may not come out of our MPH or PhD programs, but it comes from grandma, it comes from grandpa, it comes from our parents. Um, and so I think that is one really critical thing that seems to be lacking on this level. And I still advocate for this process when we're talking about these different strategies. That was great. Thank you so much for sharing that. To pivot again, the beverage industry is really aggressive and persistent in the way they resist policies that might limit their sales, especially when it comes to things like soda taxes. And as I'm sure you're well aware, the beverage industry comes out really strong with a lot of messaging around this to bolster their side. For example, they make a lot of arguments about regressivity, that a soda tax will hurt people with lower income, amongst many other things. And I'm curious if you have a good counter message to this industry staple and like, what is a good counter message that centers health equity? So through our work, we've been able to switch that. Whenever there is talk about regressivity, it is important for us to quickly turn around and look at it from a positive perspective. So when we're talking about soda taxes, it is important that we know that when they're implemented and enforced, you know, that the health outcomes are progressive. 
And this is a huge turning point when we're looking at what is the outcome and also how does it empower our communities. Um, when we're looking at our Healthy Dinner Nation Act of 2014, um, this is something that we know that we've raised millions of dollars from the taxes to be able to fund community wellness projects. So when we're looking at the outcomes of like, hey, you know, although, you know, this is going to be something that we're fighting against and that may be difficult, what is it that we can do as a community to be able to improve the social and physical environments of our people despite having these issues? And we know that we're dealing with an addiction that many folks may not be able to step back and change their eating habits or their, their drinking habits right away. But what is that conversation that maybe we'll, we'll be able to change? And also, what are the counter arguments that we're able to do? And when it comes to us as Indigenous people, the biggest thing is that these foods were never part of our diet. Salt, sugar, and flour, you know, were introduced when my people were sent on the, the long walk called Huilte, and they were sent by the U.S. government to a concentration camp where these foods were introduced. And to this day, we are still fighting these foods and we're still reacting in a way that we're responding with weakness because our bodies are not used to having these types of food in their system, in our system. And we're reacting, you know, um, in, in a very unhealthy way because it is unhealthy. And when we're giving our bodies unhealthy foods, then it is something that diminishes the health of our being. And when we react this way, it is very concerning and we see the consequences of it. And so when we're talking about the health benefits being progressive regarding the taxation, we're looking at improving the environments of our people and also the opportunities that um, we now react in a, in a very um, strong way, in a way that is strengthening our people, bringing healing, but also bringing an opportunity to talk about health and to talk about the history and to talk about where we have been in regards to what our ancestors went through, but also what are we doing now to address you know, our life ways and food ways when it comes to this. So the conversation when we're counter arguing is really just focusing on the sovereignty of who we are, but also on the rights and also on the food apartheid and the injustices that have occurred. That That is an impact that um, is greater than trying to argue against the research or the conversations or the ads or any of the information that may come out of these corporations, because we know that it's it's heavily based on competition and also um, driving um, cheap, unhealthy foods that are not empowering communities. But we've been able to do that in the opposite direction with our work. Yeah, that sounds like a very powerful counter. And I know you, you mentioned research in there. And I guess building off of this question, another thing that the beverage industry really likes to do is refute existing research and evidence against sugary drinks and you know, make claims about how sugary drinks are the wrong targets. And on the advocate side in response to this, oftentimes there's a need to present robust research showing why this rhetoric and these claims are wrong. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what the most pressing research need um, you see for advocates to continue to advance in their efforts to oppose industry claims. And yeah, if you have any thoughts about like if there's research that needs to be done or if there's other priorities. We need more research coming out of Indian country. 
um, when it comes to these types of topics because as sovereign nations were able to implement laws and policies that may not be able to be as successful outside of um, indigenous nations. And so if we could continue to support the efforts in regards to indigenous people and the lifeways and foodways, but also the battle against these types of initiatives that are harmful to our communities, that maybe we'll be able to further understand some of the frameworks, but also the strategies as well as the efforts in regards to um, the outcomes of, you know, what happens when we do implement traditional indigenous foods and drinks. What are the alternatives of sugary beverages? What are the traditional drinks, for example, like indigenous teas that maybe are naturally sweetened? You know, what are the innovation of gastronomy when we're talking about taste education that we need to learn more about the science of how do we empower ourselves? How do we become a steward of biodiversity, not only in our planting, not only in our kitchens, not only in what we're doing as far as um, bringing um, biodiversity into our communities and having increased access to healthy food, but also looking at what kind of drinks that we can create, um, but also that we have been stewarded by our ancestors that all the alternatives of sugary drinks, but being a steward of biodiversity that also would entail like in our, on our plates and also in our cups, right? You know, what are we drinking? And then also on the palates of our tongue. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at the science of what is healthy, you know, what, what tastes healthy, what do people think when they eat healthy food and looking at that science in the tongue when we're talking about our own food. Is there an increased interest when people eat our own healthy food or drink our own indigenous teas, our own drinks that would be able to um, support our immune system and our health? You know, what is the reaction on that? What can we learn from these experiences when we look from the perspective of growing our own food and supplying our own drinks on our tables and in our homes that we're able to practice sovereignty from the kitchen table, that we're not looking to the grocery store, the convenience store that serves mostly unhealthful food, that now we're looking into our gardens. Now we're looking into the ancestral practices and the knowledge and the wisdom that exists from our families and our grandmas and our grandpas and, um, and our ancestors that we're able to implement that, but also adapt and also be uh, innovative, like I said, to be able to to provide that information in a context of research is very critical because we tend to just focus on, you know, what our sugary drinks doing and, you know, what are the numbers and what are the stats? Sometimes those numbers are not talking about the narratives. Those numbers are not talking about the experiences and also the critical conversations that are happening inside homes when someone has diabetes or has experiencing the complications of diabetes when it comes to an amputation, having you know the research focus more on the community level and the local level and see you know what are those opportunities? How how can we do research and how can we highlight the innovation, but also the the stewardship of what we're doing and how we're doing it and also how we're driving change. So there is that need for collective power 
to be able to help one another, but also engage in research that is respectable and honorable and also inclusive with Indigenous people, um, with communities, um, instead of on behalf of communities, that we need to be able to see that there's integrity when we do work with community members and and seeing it from that aspect. So there are many ideas and conversations that need to occur, um, just really unveiling you know, who we are and how we've been going through this and what we see happening or not happening in our communities. And so, yes, there is a need for us to participate in these different activities to overcome what we're facing, but also to improve the health and well-being of our communities. That was so rich. You can't see me, <laughs> but I was nodding my head vigorously the entire time you were talking. It was incredible. It's such a unique and salient perspective that you bring. Yeah, but moving into one of our final questions. So you've been talking about a little bit, I think, in all of your responses, what the vision for this work. Um, So I'm curious, like, for you, what does it look like when advocates like yourself win? And by that, I mean, like, what is the end game? What is the ideal outcome from this work and this organizing? So we're addressing the root causes of where we are at this point and and where we've been. Um, We know that this work has to continue through generations, that training the next generations of health professionals, of public health advocates, of public health professionals, and everyone who is a participant of changing um, the unhealthful ways in our communities and creating um, better opportunities for people to have access to healthy food, it's important for us to see forward that the future generations, the future healthy generations is the goal. That if we know, we may not see that right now, we may not see it, I may not see it, you may not see it in this lifetime, but if it comes to the point where we do have future healthy generations, then we know that we can definitely celebrate because this work, I'm coming up almost on 10 years of doing this work And in this 10 years, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. There's still a lot of mentorship that needs to happen. There's still a lot of unveiling and unpacking of experiences because sometimes that is re-traumatizing when we're talking about um, the experiences of our people and what they've been through and just what we see our elders and the older generations um, visioning for us to come through this, that to be able to do that, they also have to address the histories. And we know that it is it, it is harmful in a way to step in those conversations and it hurts our people, but we still have to manage to be able to tap into those visions and tap into that knowledge, but also respect um, that maybe through this, that there's healing. And then also that we're able to see the truth and unveil the truth and, and maybe have some reconciliation activities Um, But know that these conversations have to happen in trust and know that in time that we could maybe one day know that there will be healthy future generations because in the midst of everything that we are doing, that we're not alone here, that we are in the midst of our ancestors, our descendants and future generations at this very moment, like there's this integration of work that we see and we may not see because of how heavy and how um, the efforts that, that we're holding and stewarding, that it's, it, it's an uh, accumulation of all these different 
experiences and atrocities and uh, and also visions and also strategies that we're trying to do all at one time. And so when we're facing food apartheid and overwhelmed by the presence of processed food and suffering from the diabetes epidemic or the uranium contamination or the colonized foodways that despite this, we continue to work towards increasing our traditional ecological knowledge that holds solutions from also our Dine language and culture, that it's important that we continue to address and revitalize our food systems, increasing our food sovereignty efforts, protecting um, ancestral knowledge for the future generations, and also um, talking about this and how food impacts climate change and sustainability. When we get to that point of addressing all these different things that we're talking about in this interview or in conversations with others that maybe then we'll be able to celebrate. And that's what we see as a vision. Um, the Healthy Dinner Nation, the hashtag that we use, that's also the vision too, is that if one day we could have a healthy Dinner Nation like our ancestors once were with you know, um, the adaptability and also the resiliency, maybe then we'll be able to celebrate. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think you really brought in so many of the connections between all the things that you talked about, food sovereignty, health, healing, environmental justice, just everything. So that was beautiful. Um, but before we finish off, I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to add that you feel wasn't covered. You know, we can never leave out the conversation we're talking about sugary drinks um, and the impacts of it and the food economies and the food system is how that impacts, you know, the development um, in our teams that, you know, we have to be able to set those examples and be able to lead, you know, with integrity that um, we're setting the, the trend and also the example that we can change the culture code that, you know, for example, for us, the many things that we've done among the strategies is that if ever we had to eat at a restaurant together as a team, that we all ordered water. You know, if there was lemon, if there were cucumbers that we could add, you know, we, we implemented that as part of our culture code of our team. And so we did that very early on because when we first started convening, we, we saw the sugary drinks on the tables. We saw, you know, that some of our team members were struggling with, you know, changing um, their, their drinking habits, you know, from diet sodas. But as we did it collectively, and as we did it with strength together um, in community, and, and if one person was diabetic, we all eat as a diabetic. And even in our families, even in my family, is it, if we have someone who's diabetic, we don't say, oh, they're diabetic, and we eat this, or I drink this, you drink that. There's no separation. We do it together. There are no sodas that are in, in my household um, and we don't have any sugary drinks like fruit juices or anything, lemonade or any, you know, drinks that people may uh, find refreshing. We don't have that. And whenever we have any convenings or any family gatherings, we're ensuring that we have naturally sweetened teas or um, teas, you know, that, that have no sugar, as well as, you know, um, seeing that we, we are doing this together. And how do we do that as a team, as an organization, that we're not just implementing any policies or um, strategies without having to do that ourselves? And so I think that, be, you know, that is the conversation of mm -hmm. being a steward of this work, but also knowing that we have a big responsibility 
that these stories and the trends and the topics and the research, everything that we're doing, that it's not just, you know, a job or, you know, a calling or a purpose, that it comes with a responsibility knowing that we have to be able to pass that forward um, to the next generations who are rising up into into implementing helpful ways uh, in our communities, but also, you know, worldwide. And so I think my last point is that, is that we have to be the examples. Thank you so much for adding that. I think that's a very important point. I'm so glad that you included that in this conversation. I, again, just want to thank you so much for joining and like giving your insight and taking the time to do this. I know even just myself from this conversation have so much to reflect on and so much to think about. And every time you speak, it's always so powerful and so insightful. And I just, yeah. This is something, you know, the conversations, you know, I've had many times with my family, with our team, with my relatives and living in the midst of food apartheid and trying to change this. There are many points, but also times of strength and and, and also times of sorrow that that happened that, you know, we're able to overcome and to achieve and to be successful in, in this short amount of time, but also knowing that we have a lot of work to do and being humble to that aspect that it is a big fight and and it takes, you know, uh, social justice warriors to be able to overcome this. And so together we can, and then also having the patience and the diligence, but also knowing that the joy and the justice that exists in this work is the ultimate strength of who we are and how we can get through it together. So thank you very much, Courtney. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Praxis. We hope you all enjoyed it. Make sure to visit our website, www.thepraxisproject.org, where you can check out additional episodes of other guests, as well as learn more about our work. 